0: Well, good to see you all tonight here at the Neighborhood Church. Uh, my name is Adam. I'm a pastor here. Would you uh, turn with me to the book of James, chapter 5. If you don't have a Bible, that's okay. There's one in front of you. Uh, or you can swipe there on your phone. We're in James, chapter 5. That's toward the back of your Bible there. We've been in this series called Live Your Faith, and tonight it's our last message in this book, before we move on to that season of Lent in which we prepare, we repent, we fast, and we get ready to celebrate the resurrection of Jesus from the dead in Easter. So until then, uh, we're going to talk about this last section in James chapter 5 tonight. So before we get there and while you're turning, how many of you have heard of an intentional community? An intentional community. Yes? So some of you have heard of the phrase. Those of you who aren't familiar with the phrase, you're certainly familiar with the concept. And the concept is that an intentional community, like the monasteries or nunneries of old, is a community that has intentionally committed to live together, pray together, and serve together. So that happens in one house many times, or lately in modern times, it happens in houses very close in the same neighborhood. So it kind of had a resurgence uh, even outside of the Catholic monasteries and nunnery traditions, and it's had a resurgence, especially because of a popular author and activist and pastor named Shane Claiborne. Shane Claiborne, several years ago, moved into the inner city of Philadelphia to begin an intentional community. They got a huge house in an under-resourced community, and they said, we're going to bring some of our friends who are fellow followers of Jesus to simply build relationships and make some kingdom." mischief. We want to follow Jesus together for God's kingdom in this neighborhood, which is what we're doing. But what they're doing, not just living near each other in these neighborhoods, they were living together and they were serving this community in the name of Jesus. And so what they would do is they would throw parties, but then they'd also kind of lead protests They were doing whatever the life of the community was doing. So maybe that's a neighborhood barbecue, or then maybe they'd go and serve on the neighborhood organizations or the crime watches. They would live life together with the people in this community with the express purpose of praying, serving, and blessing them. So this sounded like a really, really cool thing when he wrote his first book and he started to talk about his community in Philadelphia. So a lot of young, idealistic Christians who had kind of been in churches like ours, or maybe they had never been in a church like ours, they said, no, let's take the next step and let's go live in an intentional community. So several of them would flock to Philadelphia or around the country, they would commit to replicate something like that in their neighborhoods. And then what happened is this can't blame them God bless them but they would begin to do the kinds of things they had read about or seen the parties the protests the barbecues the organizations they'd be clothing and feeding and helping and doing good but what happened after a while is they would burn out doing good so why why did they burn out And why did Shane Claiborne's folks seem to keep doing it, and they're still doing it today, long after so many others have tried and just ran out of gas? Well, it's because they didn't have the fuel to go the distance. And the fuel was this prayer that fueled their practice. You see, The intentional community of God's people, the church, no matter if you're living together in the same house or in the same area, we all need to have this rhythm of prayer and practice. Prayer that gives us the ideas and the energy to go out into our neighborhood and do kingdom work. Jesus modeled this rhythm perfectly. Especially if you look at the beginning of the Gospel of Luke, you see Jesus constantly meeting needs, except when he's not. You see, in Luke, where he's healing and he's going from here to there, but then Luke is very intentional about saying he often withdrew to lonely places. If Jesus could not do all of the good works all the time, we can't either. So the secret to Jesus' success was this rhythm of prayer that fuels his practice, this rhythm of abiding and then doing. And so Shane Claiborne's community saw this happening in these different pockets. They saw the rhythm that Jesus had modeled, and so they wrote a book called Common Prayer to kind of curb and help people pray together and fuel their practice. And so what they wanted to see was the reason why we can do this, we can keep doing this, is because we are motivated and fueled by prayer. So why am I talking about this? Well, it's because James talks about it. At the end of James's letter, which is filled with the most commands of any New Testament letter, pound for pound in the New Testament, it's filled with the most commands, he closes his letter by saying, Pray. And he doesn't just talk about prayer, but he talks about, in the broader sense, not just words in prayer, but words that build up a community. Why? Because what we've seen week after week after week after week is James is writing to a community in chaos. And the community is sick because they've not been living their faith. And so James says, if you are really going to live your faith, if you're really going to practice these things, it's got to be fueled by prayer. You with me? Because in prayer, we stand in the overlap of heaven and earth. We stand in the overlap of what could be or what is. So what is, is that Silas is sick. But we pray in this space and say, but God, we know what could be is that this little infant can be well. So we pray for that reality. We stand in the overlap of heaven and earth, God's reality of heaven, of his kingdom, and we want to see that reality become our reality on earth. And we see this tonight in James' words, his last words to this community that's trying to live their faith. He says that his reality, God's reality of help, of healing, and forgiveness can be our reality. But we've got to stay fueled and connected in prayer. That's the message that James leaves us with. And we're going to pick it up in verse 12. And remember that this is a community that's in chaos. And one of the major themes of James this whole time is how we can use our words to tear people down. So what follows is not a series of random commands with prayer at the center. No, it's a series of using our words with others and in prayer to not tear people down, but to build people up. So he starts in verse 12 by saying, Above all, my brothers and sisters, do not swear, not by heaven or by earth or by anything else, All you need to say is a simple yes or no, otherwise you will be condemned. And then he moves into prayer and he says, Is anyone among you in trouble? Let them pray. Is anyone happy? Let them sing songs of praise. Is anyone among you sick? Let them call the elders of the church to pray over them and anoint them with oil in the name of the Lord. And the prayer offered in faith will make the sick person well. If one of you should wander from the truth and someone should bring that person back, remember this. Whoever returns a sinner from the error of their way will save them from death and cover a multitude of sins. Our speech can build up a community that's torn down. Our speech horizontally to one another and our speech vertically in prayer. So as we look at this passage tonight, I want to quickly address a verse that I didn't get to last week, and that was kind of by design. So on the screen now, as we think about these words that James is, uh, is, is, is giving to us, one of the things he started last week with that we didn't get to was this, in James 5, 9. Don't grumble against one another, brothers and sisters, or you will be judged. The judge is standing at the door. Now last week, we talked about how these rich, wealthy people were oppressing the poor working class that were making up James's community. And so we start as we're thinking about these words that we say and we pray, we have to go back and touch on, isn't it the experience of all of us that when we have external stress, it leads to internal conflict? And especially in the context last week when you're talking about money and financial strife. How many marriages or relationships have you seen crippled because of financial anxiety and tension and the lack of actual money or for the want of money? I mean, you can look at any premarital book or book on marriage and every statistic will tell you that the number one thing people fight about in marriage is money. And so what he's describing here as he's giving to us these last words is to say, especially here in verse 9 that we looked at last week, don't grumble against one another, that is commit to not just talk about it amongst yourselves and gripe at each other, but actually gripe about it to the Lord. Because what happens when we grumble amongst each other is it breeds division. But what James wants to see is a unison, a unity, a unity. So then we jump back to verse 12, and he says, So then above all, my brothers and sisters, this is what we're looking at tonight now. Above all, my brothers and sisters, do not swear. Now what does he mean by swear? He ain't just talking about cussing, y'all. I was doing a lot of swearing the other day because I dropped a hammer on my foot. No, he's talking about within his community. It wasn't just a common practice for people to gripe and grumble when things didn't go their way. When they're talking to other people, a common practice was that they would swear an oath. How many of you know uh, back in your preschool days when, you know, the teacher came up and you say, I swear I didn't. I swear I didn't miss. I swear on my mother's grave. Or you're trying to tell your brother, I promise I didn't eat that. Cross my heart, hope to die, stick a needle in my eye. Dude, you'd have about a million needles in your eye. Because what James is addressing then, whether you're grumbling with one another horizontally, or you're trying to puff up and use these oaths in your horizontal relationships, the more you puff it up, the more you can't be trusted. And so the common practice was in legal procedures, even with businessmen, they would try to swear on some divine being. So why would it be above all? Because truth is foundational in all of our speech. So the intent here is don't don't puff up your language just to try to um, just to try to puff up your way because it builds mistrust. Above all, truth is fundamental to our speech. Our words should build a community of trust. So before we ever get to praying for one another, have we built enough trust within our community that when we say yes, it means yes. And when we say no, it means no. The opposite of this grandiose promises that we can't deliver is truth and plain speech. Now it's remarkable how similar this verse is to Jesus' teaching on oaths in Matthew 5. I put them side by side so we could see it. It's unbelievable. Jesus says, do not swear at all, either by heaven, and he goes on to talk about because that's where the Lord is, or by earth, or by Jerusalem. And then James says, do not swear, not by heaven or by earth. That would be like your mama's grave. Or anything else. And then Jesus takes it a step further, or swear by your head. And then they both say, simply let your yes be yes and your no be no. Jesus says, anything beyond this comes from the evil one. It's lies, it's manipulation, it's trying to get a leg up on somebody. And then James says, or you will be condemned. Basically, you'll be found out and your promise is untrustworthy. You know, it's been a long time since we've talked about our mentor, James. That's a mentor for everybody in an everyday faith. But James, we believe, is the half-brother of Jesus, who walked with and worked with and saw Jesus. He heard Jesus speak to his mom and dad. He saw how Jesus related to the outcasts and the marginalized. And so throughout this letter of James, especially here in verse 12, it's really powerful that you see him embodying and then transferring the message of Jesus And so I just think it's really striking that he's using his last words to correct this horizontal relationship, to build a community of trust, because we need to take it vertically in prayer. So then he gives us, as we look down in verse 13, these situations that are so common to community life. But if you're grumbling or distrustful, you're never going to ask these people to walk with you. You're never going to ask these people to pray for you. Think about it. If you posted on Facebook and said, hey, please pray for me. And then somebody says, yeah, I'm praying for you. But you realize they're not. It's just a thing to say. So you don't feel like a jerk to just leave it sitting on Facebook. Does that build trust or distrust? Of course it builds distrust. And so we've got to get our community right, which is what James has been laboring over in this letter, before we can begin to live our faith together and to fuel the practice of being God's people together. So just a practical thing, since we're talking about Facebook, before we get into these common community issues, if you see something and you say, I'm praying and I trust that this is what happens most of the time, But even if you're just scrolling on your phone, actually stop, put it down and pray for them. I've used this as a practice in ministry. If somebody comes over to me, whether we're at lunch or whether we're just talking in in conversation, say, hey, will you pray for me? I told you about my crazy journal bullet points last week. I forget everything. I say, you know what's even better? Let's stop and pray right now. That would be the face-to-face equivalent of the Facebook praying for you. We want to be a people where prayer saturates all we are and all we do. Our prayer must fuel our practice of being God's people together. So then James gives a roll call in this powerful treatment on prayer in his last words, beginning in verse 13. He says, is any one of you in trouble? He's basically saying, is any of you in a trial or a crisis? And the answer this week is yes, yes. There are people in this community. It all kind of hits at once, right? There are people in this community right now who are in a deep-seated trial and crisis. And they don't know the way forward. And I as a pastor am deeply aware, and I told my wife this a few nights ago that last week I said if you're being oppressed and you're in a trial, God says be patient and hold on. But then I talked to somebody this week and I say thanks for your message, but it really sucks. It really sucks to be patient, and it's really hard to trust. And I said, you're right. And they said, well, thank you for giving me permission to cry out. And I said, what else can we do while we wait? And I'm keenly aware that there are people whose family members are drastically, terribly sick. And tonight I've got to preach in a few moments about how God will restore them to health. This is not pie-in-the-sky lofty things. Nothing in James has been pie-in-the-sky. It's all about where heaven and earth meets, and it's in prayer that we stand in the middle of it. And so he's talking to real people who are looking to James, looking to one another, and saying, what do we do? And James says, pray. James says, pray. If you're struggling, cry out to God, but then cry on the shoulders of others. Because the hard thing is when trials come, our impulse is to withdraw. But what we need to do is lean in. And if you see the people withdrawing we're going to talk about at the end of our time, go after them. Because you will show them that you do care when their mind is telling them you don't. And you don't just show it on Facebook, you show it in real life because you say, Hey, remember when I said I'm there? Well, look, I'm here. We need to be a community that's trustworthy, that can keep our promises of living and being and following Jesus together. Jesus calls us to a life of community, not individualism, but everything in our culture says run, it's hard. We give up on marriages, we give up on difficult relationships, we give up. In our church, may we be a people who never gives up. Why? Because sometimes James will say, are you happy? Like he does in this verse. And what he means by this is, are you in good spirits? Are you in a good place? And they say, yes. And he says, great. Praise God for it. And here's why the people who are in trouble need the people who are in good spirits. Because when they see the people in good spirits praising God and naming what God has done, it reminds them that God is still at work, even if not in their lives at this moment. But it reminds him that good things still happen. It reminds him, and that's why we try to celebrate stories of how God has worked powerfully, because we're forgetful. Because when it's hard, it's not just that we want to run away, it's that we want to forget. Read the Old Testament and find that God is continually reminding his people. You will find the Exodus story every ten pages on the Old Testament, it feels like. Because he's saying, remember... God brought you through the waters once. He can do it again. Be patient. But here's how the happy people over here need the people in times of crisis. Because they need to remember that it's not just the green pastures we walk through. God may lead us, lead us through valleys. But for both, it's a mutual reminder that we are on a journey. And sometimes we're in this camp and sometimes we're in that camp. But we're always together and God is always with us and we need to give witness to that. It's a mutual reminding that God is a good good father like we just sang and he's the giver of good gifts. So then he hits this third category that affects our people every week. Is anyone among you sick? The first thing he says if you see it on the excuse me on the screen there is to get the leadership involved. It's interesting that he doesn't tell the sick like, hey, pray or praise. Although you're assuming the sick person is praying. And it goes something like this if you had the flu. Oh God, please kill me. (laughs) That may not be the best prayer, but I consider it a prayer. But he says beyond just praying or praising, what you need to do is get the elders involved. He says summon the elders and the leaders of your church. But then he says... Let them anoint your head with oil. So the first thing we say is, what is going on with this oil thing? Well, this is another common practice like the oaths in which ancient peoples would use oil from everything to medicine. I hear you essential oils people. All right. Before Tylenol, they were rubbing oil on everything like you guys are now. Praise God. You know, you got, you got, some, you got some history there. They would use it medicinally, but they'd also use it religiously. And here's how they would use it religiously. It's a way of this sacred reminder and this kind of visceral, physical way of saying, God has marked you out. They would anoint kings. They would anoint prophets. They would anoint people. And so it's this way of saying the elders are coming and they're anointing with oil and they're saying, God is marking you out you have God's attention. You have God's care. And I believe it's ordinary oil. It's not magic oil. Our Catholic brothers and sisters, they bless the oil. And it's a sacrament. But it's ordinary oil. As much as we have ordinary bread and ordinary wine, it takes on a sacred meaning, a sacred symbol. But ultimately, where the power is, if you look in verse 15, is and the prayer offered in faith. So you can imagine then, as we go back to why you're summoning the elders, you can imagine the prayer of these men and women gathering around and putting their hands on the sick person. It's not just that the oil reminds them that they've been marked out and cared for, it reminds them that the community is behind them. So are the elders magic superhero Christians? No. But the elders' vocation and responsibility is to the people of the community. So summon the elders. Call me. Call Bud. Call Pastor Kathy officially next week. But call her tonight if you need it. She can pray, y'all. Summon the elders. And you can imagine them going and being intimately involved and touching the person that has been withdrawn because they're sick. And they're coming in contact with them. And they're praying over them. But then it's not just that they're praying and they're anointing. The vocation of pastors is to try to discern God's will. And any time we enter into prayer, any time we enter into prayer, we're stepping into that intersection between God's will, God's reality, and the reality and will of all the other beings in the universe. So that's why you don't just need the elders. If you look further then, he says later, pray for each other. We need everyone praying that God's will be done. So what about this prayer offered in faith? Will we'll make the sick person well. And the Lord will raise them up. I think two things need to be said here. Maybe three. Let's say three things need to be say, said here. There is some way in which our faith activates God's power. Make a note of James 1.6. Ask God, but when you ask, believe and do not doubt. So the first thing I want to say is that we've said a lot in our church, we pray believing God can. That's faith. God, we are at the end of our rope here. There's nothing we can do for a virus. God, we're at the end of the rope here. There's nothing the doctors say they can do. God, we are at the end of our rope here. I can't see the way forward. I don't know what's next. God, we're at the end of our rope, so I'm placing myself in your care, in faith that you can. So we pray, asking, believing, excuse me, that God can, and then we ask that God will. That's the first thing. We pray, believing God can, and we ask that He will. And if He hasn't, keep asking He will. But the second thing I want to say is this, and I know a lot of preachers would love to drill this home. If God didn't do it, you didn't believe hard enough. Now, they may not say that explicitly. But we kind of get whiffs of that every time we encounter something like this in the New Testament. Jesus says Himself in Matthew 7, 7, Ask whatever you wish and it will be done for you. And He talks about those, how faith can make in Hebrews can be the substance of things unseen. And if you just believe hard enough, if you just really just say, I think I can, I think I can, I think I can. But the problem is that God is not a cosmic vending machine. And I think when we enter into prayer, it's less like a vending machine where we put what we want in, punch a few numbers and magic words, and then what we want comes out the other end from God. I think prayer is less like a vending machine and more like a garden in which there are infinitely many variables for things to take shape and take root. But ultimately, it's God that brings growth. It's God that brings it. But we do what we can to try to test and and pray and ask and do what we can to cultivate God's kingdom coming. But ultimately, we are entering into the mysterious realm where we know that people don't always get healed. Because the third thing I want to say is we're always praying with God's will in mind and we're praying under God's will. So what do we do when we see the confidence in this verse that they will be healed, but our sick can beg to differ when they're not healed? This Thursday night... I believe the answer to this, and and there is no perfect answer. You'll just have to forgive me because the, the big picture is I just don't know. But I can tell you that this week, thinking about this question, I was sitting in, I have a couch in my little office, and Amy was out, and the girls were in there, and it was late at night after a long week, and Nora was playing with this thing here that I had on my bookshelf, in the eyesight of, what, of where I sit. And so Nora was holding this, and she said, Jesus is sad. I said, yeah, Jesus is sad here. And they're looking at this crucifix. It's from Jerusalem. My grandparents went there and got it. And uh, then Emma was sitting next to me, and she said, yeah, why did Jesus have to die? And I had been texting someone about the Kenya orphanage thing, and I just thought, so that we can all live with God, and that the orphans who don't have any food today will have food someday. And he had to die so that, you know, the people who, you know, make a mess of this world can be transformed. And Jesus died... So that we can all live and that the orphans who don't have mommies and daddies can go and run up to a good, good father. And Jesus died, I think, because the kids in the hospital that mommy sees when she goes to work, whose legs are broken and bodies can't work, will someday run and laugh and play with Jesus. And I just had in this moment with these two little girls standing there this idea, this experience that there's this way in which someday when every tear is wiped away And when every bad and sad thing becomes untrue, it's as if we'll see Jesus face to face and we'll see Him running with all the kids who've been abused and neglected and their lives cut drastically short. We'll see all the people who can't see or hear or cannot function and we'll see them running and feasting with Jesus and there will be a look in Jesus' face with this tenderness and even some slight brokenness. But when He looks at us, there's this truth and assurance that says, I promised you someday it'll all be made right. And I told her we'd see Mary Lou and Bobby and all the friends who've already died and gone to live with him. And so when James says they will be raised up, it carries with us this drastic umbrella that they may be raised up now if we pray in the name of Jesus who is already alive, but ultimately they will be raised up because death will not have the final say. That sin will not have the final say. That the enemies who are oppressing God's will and God's people will not have the last say. But we see Jesus Who prayed, God, give me any other way. But Jesus' prayer didn't get answered. And do you think Jesus had all the faith and trust in the world? Yes. So much so that he got up from the garden and he looked to the cross because he just hoped and prayed that he trusted his Father enough to get him through the other side. And so that's what we do when we pray. And when our sick aren't healed, and when things and the trials seem to be overwhelming us, we remember that He's with us, that He can, but we've got to trust Him if He's not. And I wish I could tell you and explain it all the way, but I can't. And you're going to hear me preach this again in six months when we come to another text about it, and I'll say the same thing. But tonight I want to tell you a story of a pastor friend of mine who was driving home late one night on 635. He's married now, but he was dating his uh, now wife at the time. And so he was heading home after they had watched a movie or something, and he's cruising down 635. And it's real late at night. It's the rare time when 635 is empty, if ever. (laughs) And so he's driving home, and in the headlights, he's cruising along, and he sees these two headlights way far in the distance. And then he glances up again, and now they're not so much in the distance. And then he glances up again, and they're barreling down on him. And then at this point, he's like, this stinking maniac, I've got to get off the road. This guy is flooring it. And so he peels off to the road, and he kind of turns like you do if you're a Christian, and you don't want to flip people off. You just kind of give them a stink eye a little bit. <laughs> Toby likes that. And he looks... And he sees this car fly past him. And even in that moment, as the car barrels by him, he recognizes he knows that car. And more than that, he knows the driver. It's his dad. And he made the point where after so much struggle and suffering and praying and getting, but also not getting he realized that my dad is not a maniac. I can trust him enough to know that it is not in his nature to barrel down and do something I don't understand for no good reason. I know and I trust my father. So even if I can't understand what's happening presently, I know that there is some purpose, some end. And I know that Romans 8 comes alive when we see that at the end of it, nothing had separated us from Christ's love. And also all things work together for good for those who love Him. And it's not that God caused it. It's that God's redeeming it and He's working. And that we can trust Him. Prayer is mysterious. And I don't know why all the time, but I do know our Father. So then James takes a step back and he begins to talk about prayer and forgiveness. Look with me back in verse 15. If they've sinned, they will be forgiven. Therefore, confess your sins to each other and pray for each other so that you may be healed. Now, I want to be careful here and say that James is not making a universal causal relationship between sin and sickness. You with me? So all these sick people, what did Silas do except cry and keep his mommy and daddy awake to get this virus? He didn't. There's not a causal, universal, you're sick, what'd you do? Jesus refutes this in John chapter 9. They said, hey, this blind guy, who sinned, him or his parents? And Jesus said, neither. But we have to take all of this, what James says and what Paul says and what Jesus says, and try to see, well, there may not be a universal causality, but Peter, excuse me, Paul in 1 Corinthians 11 says, some of you are sick because you're getting drunk at communion. And you're sleeping around and making a mockery of this. And so just think about it. Think about the consequences of opening ourselves up to the kinds of sins and habits. Do they not have physical consequences? Does not the stress and guilt and shame of something we did in our past that we've not confessed fester and affect us physically? So what James is getting at here is confess then, he says, literally means agree with in verse 16. Therefore, confess your sins. Agree that this was a destructive way and you'll be healed and forgiven. That's powerful because you do so horizontally and you do it vertically. You've been forgiven. Because ultimately he says this and highlight this in your Bibles. The prayer of a righteous person is powerful and effective. A righteous person is someone who's in good standing with God, and so this prayer is powerful and effective, and he gives an example of Elijah, and if you're writing down notes, you can write 1 Corinthians 17 and 18. That's kind of Elijah's greatest hits, and what's interesting what James says in this example is he doesn't use Elijah's greatest hits. In 17 and 18, there's a drought happening, and in the span of that drought that James is mentioning, dude, Elijah raises up a dead kid. That's a big deal in prayer. James doesn't use it. The other thing he did in 17 and 18 while this drought is going on is he called down fire from heaven and whipped some Baal prophets who were trying to call on their fake gods. That's a big deal. But the example James uses is when Elijah prayed in isolation, hiding out for his life in a cave, Crying out to God saying, hey, I'm the last one. Jezebel's running around killing all these prophets. God, where are you? And the example that James uses with the drought is when Elijah prayed in a moment of weakness, in a moment of desert, in a moment of isolation. And it's a reminder to us that we can all pray and things can change and we can change and the dry places can be restored. I think that's a powerful, lasting word that he uses when he uses the example of Elijah. Which gives us hope then, at the last command, then look back at your horizontal relationships, because the dry people who've wandered far in the desert can still be restored. Do you see that in verse 19? He says, if one of you should wander from the truth, if one of you should stray away from the gospel and the living of your faith, Like I mentioned earlier, it's not just now I'll pray for you territory. It's Jesus leaving the 99 sheep so he can go find the one and pull him back from the cliff. Which is why James says if you find him and you bring him back to speak truth and love and to use words that build a person up and draw them back, it covers, it removes a multitude of the sins and death and destruction that their life would have been had they persisted in their way. So as we close, I want to remind you a few things about prayer. And then I want to remind you a few things about living our faith together. And you can just put this bullet-pointed list up and we'll hit these quickly while we're talking about prayer. First, I think we saw that prayer is mysterious. We're standing in the middle of heaven and of earth and we're praying, God, would your kingdom come and your will be done in our reality. Would your reality be our reality? But we just don't know all the infinite variables that go into it. Prayer changes us. Prayer changes us. We find forgiveness, we find healing, we find peace, we find rest. And we even learn more and more about God in our life with Him if the third thing, we just show up takes discipline prayer takes discipline i confess to you last week the hardest thing for me to do some mornings is to actually sit down and pray that's a confession of a pastor because i'm more wired to go and not sit so sometimes it just takes showing up which i really really hope you take this lent deal seriously so if you're a person that lacks discipline Do you take a shower every morning? Here's why I'm asking you about your personal hygiene. What would it look like for you to commit to pray in the 10 or 15 minutes you take a shower every morning or night? How would that change your day? How would it look to just use that time where you can't have your phone in the shower unless you got one of them nifty waterproof ones? But what if you changed and converted that Discipline. What if when you're driving in your car, you turn off the radio for the last five minutes to where you're going and you talk about what we are doing together, God? Dallas Willard said that prayer is talking to God about what we're doing together. What does it look like to convert some of those spaces, some of those moments of discipline Fourth, prayer takes patience. Our time is not God's time. And then fifth, prayer changes the world. Elijah, who was just a human being, James reminds us, was a human being like us that powerfully affected the world in which we lived. So my question I'll leave you with before we talk more about living our faith is this. How would daily faith-filled prayer change you and your world? How would it change your family? How would it change your workplace and those relationships? How would it change your perspective and attitude toward your family and those people? How would it change our city, our neighborhoods, our church? What would it look like to convert some of that time and to enter into that gap between heaven and earth? So prayer fuels our practice And this letter has been a powerful gift to me. I pray it's been a powerful gift to you. And James, as he's talking about our words and our prayers that build each other up, I hope you found that it's not just about you living your faith, but it's about us living our faith. And so may we be a church that stands in between God's reality and our own reality through prayer for each other as we follow Jesus together. For God's kingdom. Let's pray. Lord, for those of us who are in trouble, may they cry out to you and find an attentive Father to whom they belong. Lord, for those of us who are happy, may they pour out prayers and songs of thanksgiving. And those of us who are sick, may they be sustained. And strengthened. May they be healed in the name of Jesus. We pray that they would be healed not just then, but today. And we ask because we believe that you can. And we ask because we believe and hope you will. So, Lord, meet with us tonight as we come to the table together. And may we be a people who pray and live our faith. In Jesus' name, Amen. Tonight's Benediction is go forth into the world in peace, be of good courage, hold fast to that which is good, render no one evil for evil, strengthen the faint hearted, support the weak, help the afflicted, honor everyone, love and serve the Lord, rejoicing in the power of the Holy Spirit, and blessing of God Almighty, the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, be among you and remain with you always. Amen. Now go in his peace.